Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Amos chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring wine, let us drink. You know, the Bible's never been known to be politically correct, and I guess this is one perfect example of this. Um, But this is another prophecy that Amos is speaking uh, to Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. And he mentions the cows of Bashan. Now, Bashan was the name of the region uh, east of the Jordan River. Uh, It was ruled by Og, who was the king of Bashan. And so it was east and kind of north of the Sea of Galilee. And this is part of the region that God had given that land to Israel. Well, the question comes up now, who are the cows of Bashan? Now, if you've got a King James Bible, your, your Bible might say the kinds. Well, anyways, it is a heifer is what, the, what it refers to. And uh, I'm a city slicker, so I had to look this up. A heifer <laughs> is it. We should ask Dan come up here. He's a farmer. He can give us all the, the lowdown on heifers. But they're young female cows that haven't produced a calf yet. Is that, is that right? Okay, good. <laughs> so this is what this is referring to. And it's interesting because in Hosea, which was the book we studied before this, Uh, Chapter 4, verse 16, God says, For Israel is like a stubborn calf. Now, the fat cows of Bashan, the fatness there, it's not referring to, I don't think, the physical fatness of 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 these people who are being addressed. But fatness in those days implied wealth. And uh, and so what are these people? Who are these people? Well, I believe that this is a prophecy to or about the wealthy narcissistic women in that culture and in that day who dominated their husbands. Now, they're not being condemned for being wealthy, but that wealthy lifestyle, that opulent lifestyle came through either the oppression of the poor um, and needy or by the women, by the women themselves, excuse me, or they dominated their husbands so much uh, that in order to keep them happy and living the opulent lifestyle, their husbands uh, crushed the poor and the needy in, in order to maintain that lifestyle for their wives. Kind of an interesting social commentary there. Um, so you might say, well, you know, that's kind of interesting. Why those particular individuals are being called out? Well, I think there's a deeper meaning below the surface here that God is trying to communicate, calling these these women, apparently, the cows of Bashan. Um, you know, the northern ten tribes who this prophecy is spoken to, um, they seceded from the southern two tribes. They, they had a war of independence, basically, the rebellion or whatever you want to call it, and they ended up with two kingdoms and two kings, right? Israel, the ten northern tribes, uh, was Israel or Samaria, uh, or Ephraim was also that they were known by. The, the southern two tribes were known as Judah, even though it comprised Judah and Benjamin. Well, the first king of the northern tribes His name was Jeroboam, and he set up two golden calves in his kingdom, one in Bethel and one in Dan. And the people had become so steeped in the worship of these idols 
that they were becoming like what they worshipped. And I think that's where this is, this is why God is referring to them as the cows of Bashan, because it's true that you become like what you worship. Let me just throw this out here. Here's a good personal inventory you can take for yourself if, you're, if you dare to, I should say. Over the past months or years, what have you become like? And, uh, you know, we generally have a pretty good impression about ourselves. So let me, let me challenge you. If you're really, really courageous, go to someone who knows you really well. A very close friend, a family member, maybe your husband or your wife or a brother or sister or parent, whatever, child. And say, have you noticed a change in me? How, what have I become like? And it'd be interesting to hear what they have to say. And some of you might, because I know what they're going to say. You know, I don't want to even ask them that. Well, if you're courageous, go ahead and ask them. And, and then just pray about what they share. Because let me, let me say this. If you are a worshiper of Jesus, growing in your faith, you know what their answer is going to be? You're becoming more like Jesus. I see more of Jesus in you. If you're not becoming more like Jesus... What are you becoming more like? And so it's a, it's a good personal inventory we can take for ourselves. And I think that's why the Lord's calling these women, in particular the cows of Bashan, not necessarily, uh, obviously not because of their physical, you know, their bodies, um, and not necessarily because of their wealth, but because of they had become like what they worshipped. And the northern ten tribes worshipped cows, the golden calves, in their tribes up there, in the tribe up there. Verse 2, The Lord God has sworn by His holiness... Behold, the day shall come upon you when he will take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. You will go out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into Harmon, says the Lord. It says the Lord God has sworn by his holiness. You know, a lot of times when we try to convey that we're telling the truth to someone, you know, we might say something like, I swear on a stack of Bibles. You ever heard that? Or maybe you've even said that before. Or, or I swear on my mother's grave. Because people always want to swear on something greater than themselves. Well, the thing is, there's nothing greater or no one greater than God. So he can't swear by his mother's grave or a stack, you know, stack of Bibles or anything. He can only swear by himself. And so God says, I swear by my own holiness. And what he is basically saying is what he's prophesying here, it's going to happen. It's going to come to pass. Behold, the day shall come upon you when, they will, when he will take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. This would be literally fulfilled when the Assyrians would take the northern ten tribes of Israel into captivity. The Assyrians were a brutal people. They were greatly feared. They were like the ISIS of their days. Uh, they, uh, they've discovered, they've uncovered like these stone carvings and things that, uh, from the Assyrian culture. And one of them, they show this Assyrian literally flaying or, 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 or skinning a prisoner alive. Uh, they were very, very violent. They would rip out the tongues of their victims. They would gouge out their eyes. They would cut off their hands, feet, and noses. They were greatly feared. And they would take their captives back to Assyria with a hook through either their lips or through their nose, and they'd have a chain of, of prisoners, and they'd all be hooked like a fish hook, you know, like a leader with all these hooks on it. And they, that's how the captives would go back to Assyria. So they were greatly feared. And God says, this is how you're going to go back to, that's, this is what's going to happen to you and to your posterity. 
It says you will go out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her. And so you can just picture this. You know, their cities have been demolished or destroyed, and out of the ruins they're getting dragged. They're, they have, they're being forced to march back like this to Assyria. It says you will be cast into Harmon. And that word really, it just means a foreign palace. And so God is, is prophesying, he's foretelling that you are going to be going into captivity. Verse 4, come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the freewill offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. I don't know if you sense a little sarcasm there, but uh, I think God is really just really being sarcastic here. Uh, it sounds, though, doesn't it sound kind of like God is saying, hey, come on, go ahead and sin. It's like he's encouraging them to sin when he says, come to Bethel and transgress. Where was Bethel or what is Bethel? Well, Bethel, the name actually means the house of God. And it's got a, a great and a rich history among the Jewish people. That was the place where Abraham, he was near there when he pitched his tent. And it's in Genesis 13, verse 3, it says, And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So this was the place where Abraham's walk with the Lord really began. It was there at Bethel where Abraham started calling on the name of the Lord. He had built an altar there, um, and, and God had blessed that altar. That's where God met Abraham there. It's also where Jacob, Abraham's grandson, he was at the same place years, decades, or at least years later. Uh, he was there at the same place at Bethel, and he went to sleep one night. He put his head, he used his rock as a pillow, and uh, sometimes my pillow feels like a rock, but anyways. Um, and, and during that dream, he had a dream there, and he saw an, a ladder extending to heaven, and he saw angels ascending and descending on this ladder, and the Lord was standing above it. Jacob, in fact, is the one who named the place. It used to be called Luz or Luz, and he's the one who named it Bethel. Well, in Genesis 28, 20, it says, Then Jacob made a vow, saying, this is at Bethel here after this dream, If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and all uh, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. This was really the place where Jacob's walk with the Lord really began here at Bethel. And again, Jacob also built an altar right there at Bethel. And God had blessed those altars that Jacob and, and, and Abraham had built there. That was the starting place, so to speak, of their walk with the Lord, the location where it began. You know, I rededicated my life to the Lord years ago, and uh, I, I've been was you know I uh, accepted Christ as a teenager or a young younger before I was a teenager, and got involved in a bunch of junk, and eventually, I rededicated my life to the Lord, and I have a Bethel, and I drive by it every once in a while when Teresa and I go to Sioux Falls because there's a Calvary Chapel there. We go there once in a while. I go, hey Teresa, there's my Bethel. We drive right by it, and it's it's a road stop. It's like a wayside, you know, one of those. 
Waysides on the highway. It's that place where I rededicated my life to the Lord. It's that place where my walk with the Lord really took off. And I'm sure each one of you can think of, man, I can, I can remember my Bethel. Well, this was Jacob and Abraham's. It was literally Bethel for them. And they had built uh, altars there. God had blessed those altars. But by the time that this prophecy is being given, God had already, years before, established worship at the temple in Jerusalem. That was where he said, you're going to come to the temple and worship me there. I'll meet with you there. However, Jeroboam had set up an altar to the golden calf there in Bethel. At Gilgal, it says, multiply transgression. Gilgal, another place rich in history. Gilgal was the place that the Israelites camped at right before they came into the land of Canaan. They were right on the edge of the Jordan River. And it's where the males, 12 years old and up, were circumcised. Their fathers and their uncles and their grandfathers had all been circumcised. But they all died in the wilderness as they went, you know, traveling through the wilderness for 40 years. This new generation had not been circumcised. And they were getting ready to grow into the promised land. God says, I want you to circumcise all your males, 12 years old and up. Joshua 5.9 records it. God said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. What, what a, a place to remember. Man, that was where we rededicated our lives to the Lord. That's where we were getting ready to go into the promised land. It's where the children of Israel observed their first Passover since leaving Egypt. And it was that, that first Passover. You know, God had provided for the children of Israel for 40, day, 40 years. Not 40 days. 40 years. You know, uh, their sandals never wore out. Their clothes never wore out. They were provided food. God blessed them and took care of them that entire time. And when that first Passover occurred, they ate afterwards. They had a feast and they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan. And it was that day that the manna stopped. What a, what a, what a place to go, man, that was what a, what a, a, a that would have been a memorial place. A, just a man, you know, a place that they would remember very well. It was there that really the nation of Israel, as, as the, the nation of Israel, it's really there where they started their walk with the Lord as they were going into the promised land. Here's where the children of Israel also set up 12 stones at the Jordan River to commemorate their relationship with God. And this place as well, years later, was where Jeroboam also set up an altar to the golden calf. So both of these two places were very important places in the life of the nation of Israel, but by now they had turned into places of idolatry. And when I think about that, I think, you know, that is a picture of so many Christians' lives. Not, hopefully not many, but there are Christians who you go back and you go, you know, I remember when, when you know, I was just walking really close with the Lord and, and God was speaking to me. I was growing. I was becoming more like Jesus. But, you know, after a while, sometimes we kind of compromise. We kind of get distracted. Things happen. And we've just, we've drifted away from the Lord. And I think this is a picture of that. By now, the children of Israel had fallen into idolatry. Those very places where their lives had taken off with the Lord, now it's just they're steeped in idolatry. And God says to them, 
Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the freewill offerings. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. He says, bring your sacrifices every morning. You know, the children of Israel in Numbers 28 were commanded to offer a lamb as a sacrifice once in the morning and once in the evening every day. And then it says, your tithes every three days. Now, the King James Version says years. The New King James, the one I'm reading right here, says days. And I was like, well, is it days or is it years? Which is it, you know? Well, what it really means is after three years of days. So you could say it's been three years. But after three years of days. And this is the, the, the command that God gave them, a, a tithe every th- third year. It's in Deuteronomy 14.28. It says, at the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand, which you do. God says, if you take care of the Levites, who are ministering before me, if you take care of the poor, the fatherless, every third year you set aside stuff for them, I'm going to bless anything that you do. You're going to prosper. He says, offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Now that's referring to Leviticus 7, verse 13. Now you might say, wait a minute, the children of Israel were not supposed to offer leaven. You know, they're supposed to do unleavened bread. No leaven was supposed to be on on the altar. And that's Absolutely true. But what this is speaking about is the, uh, the peace offering, or right after the peace offering. They were to have a loaf of leavened bread, and it was to be offered with the peace offering as a thanksgiving offering. It was basically the feast after the peace offering. They were to eat uh, this leavened bread. They were to share it with the priest, and, and the person who was offering the sacrifice was to eat of this bread. I, I, you know, leavened bread tastes better than unleavened bread, let's face it. And so it's a joyous time. It's a happy time. And uh, so it was part of a feast of thanksgiving. And then he says, proclaim and announce the free will offerings. That's basically, you know, above your tithes. You go, you know, I just want to bless that ministry, or I just want to bless that person, or I just want to, I want to give more to the Lord because the Lord's been so good to me. That's what a free will offering is. He says, all these things you love to do. Now, isn't it interesting? The children of Israel, they've got these altars that are, they're counterfeit altars. They're not the, the, the altar, the place of sacrifice, the place of meeting God is at the temple in Jerusalem. But they had got steeped up in idolatry, worshiping their own gods. And yet, they're going through the motions of the laws of Moses, the Levitical laws of sacrifices. They're going through, they're doing all those things. And can you imagine what one of those people in, uh, in, you know, in Israel at that time, what they're thinking? I think it's a lot like a lot of people today, right? Hey, I've offered my daily sacrifices. Man, I'm good to go. Um, I, you know, I've tithed so God should bless whatever I'm doing. Maybe I'm not walking with the Lord, but you know what? I gave. God's going to bless me. Uh, or I'm good and I'm acceptable to God and I'm at peace, of him, peace with Him because I'm doing all these religious things. And that was the mindset of the children of Israel during this time. They were giving extra money to worthy causes. I mean, they they were doing all these things, and yet their hearts were far from the Lord. And that's what God is speaking to them about. 
the problem was that they were now worshiping idols and they were just going through the motions of religious practices to make themselves feel good or to make themselves feel righteous before God. And how many people do we know that are like that today? You know, hey, I was baptized when I was so and so, you know, or I, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm an American, man, I'm a Christian. What do you mean? You know, or, you know, whatever. I go to church and yet they don't have that deep, close relationship with the Lord. And so what's God to do about them? Verse 6. Also I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Cleanness, cleanness of teeth, huh? What does that mean? Well, here's the thinking. If you don't eat food, your teeth aren't going to get dirty. Well, I tell you what, I wake up in the morning, my teeth, you, they may not be dirty, but they smell dirty. <laughs> you know, but, but that's the idea, that's the thinking. If, if you're not eating your food, you're not, you're not going to get food stuck between your teeth. Your, feet, your tooth aren't, teeth aren't going to be dirty. It's the same thinking or the same logic as what's expressed in Proverbs 14.4, where it says, Where no oxen are, the trough is clean, but much increase comes by the strength of an ox. Man, if you got a clean barn that's pristine, it looks, you know, you could eat off the floor in your barn. I mean, it was really clean, but you don't have any, you know, any oxen, no cattle and stuff. You're, well, you're not producing anything, you're not, but you got a nice clean place, but you're not doing anything. That's, that's, a, that's the thinking here. And so basically what God is saying, I removed, you didn't have enough food to eat. I mean, that's what it boils, it's a long way to say that. God gave them empty stomachs, nothing to eat. And why did he do that? So that they would repent of their sins and return to him. But they didn't. So what else is he going to do? Verse 7. I also withheld rain from you when there were still three months to the harvest. I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. Man, you know, that sounds so similar to what we're experiencing in our nation today. Out in California, I talk to my mom every once in a while. She's telling me how terrible the drought is and how bad it's getting and how they're, you know, things, you know, it's getting worse and worse and they're starting to really, really clamp down on people. And they are, the drought is serious over there in California right now. And there's a lot of produce that comes out of California. I got a feeling prices, they're already going up. They're going to go up a lot more after the effects of this drought. But then you go to where? South Carolina, I think. Is it North Carolina? South Carolina? They got so much rain, they don't know what to do with it. They're flooding over there. God's inundating people in South Carolina. He's withholding rain in California. This is what this is talking about. Um, He says, So two or three cities, verse 8, wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. So God caused the nation to experience shortages of water and food, So overall, there was not enough to satisfy the need of the entire population. And why did he do it? So that they would repent and return to him. I wonder if that's what's happening in our nation. You know, it makes you think. Why God is, you know, is it those those dirty, rotten Californians, and that's what God's punishing them without rain, and we're blessed here in the the Midwest. Man, we're we're all wicked. (laughs) They're not any worse wicked than we are. Believe me, we're all wicked without Jesus Christ. Um, but what was the purpose? The purpose was that they would repent and return to the Lord, and yet they didn't. So what else is God going to do? Verse 9, I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees, the locusts devoured them, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. 
So God, if they, if they had crops, their crops would have disease and rot. And even if their crops grew, then he would send locusts to destroy or to devour their crops. Why? So that they would repent of their sins and return to him. And yet they didn't return to the Lord. So what, all, so what else can God do? Verse 10, I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I killed with a sword along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come into your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. You know, God had promised the children of Israel through Moses in Exodus 15, verse 26. He says this, If you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in His sight, give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. God says, if you follow me, what's happening to the Egyptians, it's not going to happen to you. That was God's promise to the children of Israel. But God also warned them in Deuteronomy 28, verse 27, if they turned away from following him, he says this, the Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors and with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. And then later on in that same chapter, verse 60, moreover, he will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid and they shall cling to you. What a sad commentary of the children of Israel. In other words, if they sinned like Egypt did, they would be punished like Egypt was punished. Your young men I killed with the sword. Along with your captive horses, I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils. This was most likely fulfilled by Hazael, who was the king of Syria. In 2 Kings 13, verse 7, speaking of this, this, this there was an invasion of his, Hazael there, and it says there in verse uh, 7 of 2 Kings 13, For he left the army of Jehoahaz only fifty horsemen, ten chariots, and ten thousand foot soldiers. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. He had killed so many, wiped out so many of the of soldiers and the horses of Israel they, I'm sure they, the first thing they would do, because Jewish people are kosher, right? So they would, they would bury their dead. I mean, that's the most common, decent thing to do. But there were so many dead horses laying around that pretty soon that stench of death, it was just coming up into their nostrils. Because, I mean, there was just too much to bury. They had been wiped out so much. And that's some people, they, they, they get so steeped into sin that it's like they're wallowing in it. And the stench is just coming up into their nostrils. There's death all around them. And why does God allow that to happen? Because he wants them to repent and return to him. And yet they wouldn't return to him. What else can God do? Verse 11, I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were plucked. Uh, excuse me, and you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. It's interesting. There are people that look at the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis, and they go, well, that was just a fable. I mean, how could that literally happen? And this is at least 12 centuries later, and here God is still using it as a historical fact. Hey, I'm going to do the same thing to you that I did to them if you don't repent of your sins, if you don't return to me. He says, you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me. 
And this reminds me of, of Paul's warning to Christians. In 1 Corinthians uh, 3, verse 15, he's talking about what foundations do you build on? You know, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you have that foundation of Jesus Christ, right? He's your Lord and your Savior. You know, it's, we're saved by faith through Christ alone, not through anything that we've done. And so that's our foundation. Jesus Christ is our foundation. But as a Christian, what are you building on on top of that? Are you becoming more like Jesus Christ? Are you walking with Him? Are you growing in, in, in the Word? Are you growing in fellowship? Are you growing in ministry? Are you maturing in your faith? Or are you building on with other stuff? You know, stuff, wood, hay, and stubble. Those things that are going to pass away, that are going to burn with fire. And one day we are all, as believers, we're going to stand before Christ in a judgment. And it's not a judgment that's referring to damnation because Jesus Christ paid the price for us on the cross. It's not a judgment for damnation, but it's a judgment based on our works that we did in the body of Christ. What did you do with the time, the talent, and the treasures that I gave you on this life, in this life? What did you do with your life? And those that have built on foundations of wood, hay, and stubble, it says if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. It has through fire. Now, I don't know if we're going to be able to smell in heaven, but I bet you there's going to be some that we're going to see and we're going to go, man, were you at a campfire somewhere? No, man, I just, I just, I made it in. I'm here, but whew, everything got burned. You know, in Jude, verse 22 and verse 23, Jude tells the believers, he says, on some have compa- compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Man, that's why we're to be in fellowship with one another. That's why we're to be accountable to one another. So that, you know, if you see a brother or a sister starting to, to drift away, starting to get involved in stuff, pull them back. You know, man, get, get, you know, we're, we're to be accountable to one another. And to pull them back, to save others, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. God is telling His people, look at all these terrible things uh, that happened to you, I'm trying to get your attention, and yet you won't repent, and you won't return to me. Do you sense God's heart? It, you know, at one, one part, if you just read through this, you go, man, God is, he's wiping out his people. He's, 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 he's punishing them. He's treating them like the Egyptians that, you know, back years ago that he had uh, sent all these plagues on. But you know what God's heart is? God wants us to return to him. He wants us to repent. That's what His heart is towards you and I today. And when you and I are practicing sin, when we've replaced Him on the throne of our heart with something or someone else, because that's what idolatry is. Idolatry is putting something in your heart that you're placing above your relationship with Jesus Christ. It could be a person. It could be a thing. It, you know, it can be all kinds of things. That, it could be yourself. You could put yourself uh, ahead of your relationship with Jesus Christ. And when that happens in our lives, God loves you too much to let you stay that way. And so he's going to try to get your attention. And it might be through difficult circumstances. It might be through a really trying time. It might be through a trial by fire in your life. But sometimes God does that to get our attention because he wants us to repent and return to him. You know, not only is that God's heart towards ancient Israel, 
like we're reading today. And not only is it God's heart towards you and I right now here today, but I think it's even God's heart during the last days, including the Great Tribulation. It's fascinating. To the church in Thyatira in Revelation 2.21, God says this, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Sometimes we wonder, you know, why is God prolonging? You know, we see that, like the, the, the terrible things that are going on in the Middle East. Why is God prolonging these things? Why does God allow wickedness to thrive? Well, God is prolonging his judgment because he wants people to repent. He's giving people as much time as possible to repent. He wants as many as possible to come to faith in him. But even during the Great Tribulation, fascinating to me, in uh, Revelation 9, verse 20, this is when the sixth trumpet is sounded by an angel. This is in the midst of the tribulation. It says this in verse 20 of Revelation 9, But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality moralities or their thefts even during the great tribulation they're not repenting and it sounds to me like this is god's heart is still even in the great tribulation he wants them to repent and they're still not repenting in revelation 16 verse 10 the fifth bold judgment it's darkness and pain people are going to be gnawing their teeth just wanting to die because it's so miserable it says then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became full of darkness and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain they blasphemed the god of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds you might say why how could a loving god send someone to hell he's given them every opportunity to repent and return to him And through it all, even through the most miserable thing, they still refuse to repent and return to the Lord. God is doing this with Amos, or not with Amos, with the children of Israel. He's trying to give them every opportunity. He's allowing them to experience what Egypt experienced when Egypt was refusing to allow the children of Israel to come into the to to go, you know, to be delivered from, from bondage to slavery. God is trying to get their attention. And yet, they're not responding. So what's he going to do? Verse 12. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. That's not a good thing. (laughs) It's like, that's a scary thing. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Let me encourage you this morning. Maybe the Lord is trying to get your attention this morning. If he is, man, let me beg you, don't ignore what the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. One day you and I will stand before the Lord. Jesus spoke of that day. In Mark 13, verse 32, he says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when that time is. It's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to keep watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. 
Man, I pray the Lord, when the rapture of the church, I pray that I'm not sleeping. And I don't mean physically sleeping, but I mean that I'm not looking for His return. That I'm not prepared for Him. Jesus spoke these words to the dead church of Sardis in Revelation 3.3. This is another church. They're going through the motions, and yet their hearts were far from the Lord. It says, Remember therefore how you have received uh, and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Remember how you received and heard. Remember your Bethel. Think back to the time when you said, man, I, I, I just want to follow the Lord. Or maybe that's the time when you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you haven't gone through the backsliding and repentance and you know rededication thing. Maybe you've this, you've just you gave that your heart to the Lord, but now you're now you're in that backslidden state. Remember what it was like. Do you remember what it was like when you were first on fire for Jesus? You couldn't get enough Bible study. You couldn't read the Bible. Man, you you had to share it with people. You were praying. The Lord was just speaking. You were growing. Well, remember that, and return to that place in your life. Verse 13, For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thoughts is and makes the morning darkness, who treads the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name, who declares to man what his, thoughts, uh, what his thought is. Now, not only does God proclaim to man uh, what our thoughts are, God knows our thoughts even before we think them, right? Um, in John, in John 2, verse 24, it says, But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men, and he had no need for anyone that should testify, or, and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. God knows you and I. He knows our hearts. He knows our weaknesses. But that's, I don't think, is necessarily what this is speaking about. It says, I believe that God also declares to man what his thoughts are. God is declaring what his heart is in this. He wants people to repent and return to him. In John 1 verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has declared him. You want to know the heart of God? Get into your word and read Jesus. Read, read the words of Jesus. Look at what Jesus did. Look at what Jesus said. Because if you want to understand God's heart, you have to look no further than Jesus himself. Remember, I think it was Philip said, you know, who's saying to Jesus, hey, show us the Father and that would be good enough for us. And Jesus, I can just imagine him just shaking his head saying, Philip, man, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so if you want to know what the Father's heart is towards you or, or toward anything, you just need to get into the Word and read about Jesus. Study Jesus, what He did. It says, For behold, He who forms mountains and creates the wind, who declares to man what his thought is and makes the morning darkness. I don't know about you, but mornings are usually light and bright and cheery, right? But he can make the morning darkness. And what I think this might be possibly referring to is back to the flood of Noah. Remember, they, they had sunlight all the time. Well, they had light. They didn't have probably direct beaming sunlight because they had that canopy or whatever, that water above the, above the heavens. 
So they had this, you know, maybe it was just always kind of like a, a glow. I don't, I don't know. I wasn't there, so I couldn't tell you. But, but, you know, they had light. But then that when judgment came, man, it got dark. Those clouds forming, the water just, I mean, it got dark. The sun was obscured by all that water coming down. And I think this is what uh, that might be possibly referring to. He makes the morning darkness who treads the high places of the earth. The Lord God of hosts is his name. God is so much higher than any of us. You know, one of the things with our uh, van, you did a wonderful job with announcements, by the way, but uh, you know, one of the things that he mentioned was uh, the third Sunday of the month, just spending time seeking the Lord. And uh, uh, it's, not a, it's not a Bible study time. It's just a time of worshiping the Lord, sitting here. It doesn't matter if there's two of us, one of us, <laughs> five of us, 20 of us, or all of us. It doesn't matter. But whoever's here, we're just going to come together. We're going to seek the Lord. And we're going to just ask the Lord to reveal himself to us and, and just ask of him to just fill us with his spirit and stuff. So that's really what, it's not a freaky time. You know, you might go, I don't, I've never, I mentioned afterglow last week and uh, people are like, I don't know what an afterglow is, but it sounds kind of weird. Well, it's not weird. It's just, it's just seeking the Lord. And so that, that's going to be coming up here. And uh, God wants to reveal his hearts to us. And I just want to encourage you, if, if you want to, if you want to just know more of the Lord, experience more of the Lord, come on Sunday nights because that's what it's all about. That's the purpose behind it. It's just drawing close to the Lord. It doesn't mean you're more spiritual than anybody else. It doesn't mean you're you know it's like I'm mature. I can I'm, I'm going to the next. No, it's it's just man, I can't get enough of Jesus. I hope that's your attitude too. I can't get enough of Him because I am so full of the flesh. I hate myself. I need Jesus. I need His Spirit. And so that's what that's for. So why don't you stand up? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, we thank you for your words to Amos, or through Amos, to the children of Israel. And Lord, I know that so often, just as, just as Luke led us in worship and the, the worship team led us, Lord, where, Lord, so often we stray from you, Lord. And you're, you're, you died for us, and we're the ones, the sheep that love to stray from the shepherd. And Father, I thank you for this reminder this morning that even, uh, Lord, your heart's desire, and you've revealed this, I believe, through your word this morning by your Holy Spirit, your heart's desire is that each one of us would come back to that place of Bethel in our lives, Lord, where we were growing, where we were just hungry for you. Lord, forgive us for getting distracted by the things of this world. Forgive us, Lord, for trying to, trying to, uh, we, we started in a walk of faith, starting by the Spirit, but now we're trying to justify ourselves by just coming to church and just going through the motions of being religious. And Lord, our hearts are far from you. Father, forgive us of those things. Lord, may we draw close to you this morning. Lord, we love you and we thank you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.